So when Mike Rowe was in high school, he was sitting in his uh, high school counselor's office talking about his future, and he looked up on the wall and he saw a poster, and the poster said, work smart, not hard. <laughs> and he said he remembers feeling in high school just mad. Like, why can't we work smart and hard? Is that an option for us? Uh, Mike Rowe sort of specializes in hard work. Uh, he went on, if you know this, he went on to start a TV show called Dirty Jobs. Any Dirty Jobs fans out there? Uh, in which he performed uh, some of America's dirtiest occupations, like collecting bat guano for fertilizer or the artificial insemination of cattle. It's actually a job. And a few years ago, he actually resurrected the show concept with a reboot on CNN called Somebody's Gotta Do It. And in the show, he, he learns how to do the hard jobs that nobody really wants to do, but somebody has to do, like rodeo clowns or desert rescue rangers. I gotta tell you that I have a little bit of a, a, a man crush on Mike Rowe. Uh, he, he's, he's a hardworking guy who isn't afraid to get his hands dirty. He actually also studied music and communications in college. I too studied music and communications in college. So, so Micro talks very publicly about the importance of hard work and, and the value of learning a useful trade or skill instead of, you know, studying music and communications in college. But the show doesn't just resonate with me as a middle-class guy whose parents taught him the value of hard work. The show actually resonates with me as a Christian. You see, Christians follow Jesus. We're, we're clear there. Christians follow Jesus. Jesus himself was a hard-working guy. He was, especially in a spiritual sense. He did the dirty jobs. Came to earth, washed our feet, died on the cross for our sins. He did what nobody wanted to do because he knew that at the end of the day, somebody's just got to do it. That's what I want to talk to you about this morning for a few minutes. Uh, we're actually taking a break from our current sermon series here at Rooftop. We're working our way through the Sermon on the Mount, but we're taking a one-week break for that, and we do this every fall. We have what we call Serve Sunday. We just take one day during the fall to focus on service, uh, servanthood. It's one of our six key practices here at Rooftop, the six marks we think of a, a healthy church or healthy Christian. God's people are called, as much as anything, to, to be servants. As the Apostle Peter writes, each of you should use whatever gift you have received to serve others. Like, that's why God has equipped you with what he has, so that you may serve others. As faithful stewards of God's grace in its various forms. Servanthood is what the grace of God looks like in our lives. And it is our job as church leaders and pastors and deacons and elders and staff to help you understand what it means to serve. As Paul writes to the Ephesians, Christ himself gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors, the teachers to equip his people for works of service. That's my job. Get you ready to serve. So we're going to talk about servanthood this morning. But we're not just going to talk about servanthood. We're also going to give you the opportunity to serve. As we do every year, we're going to end our service a few minutes early to give you a few minutes just to go outside on the front lawn, 
Uh, there you will find nearly 20 tables uh, with all kinds of people eager to tell you about all of the many service opportunities here at Rooftop. In case you don't know, Rooftop exists as a church because of the hundreds of hardworking volunteers who do all kinds of dirty jobs around here. Now, I know a lot of you are already serving in your communities, in your neighborhoods, at your places of work, in, in your families, and a lot of you are, are already serving triple duty here at Rooftop, which is all good. But if you are looking for an opportunity to practice servanthood, to learn servanthood as someone who's been equipped by God to serve others, we want to give you that chance this morning. First, though, let's just talk about servanthood. More specifically, let's talk about what the Bible says about service. Uh, Of course, the Bible gives us plenty to discuss when it comes to servanthood, but this morning I actually want to visit one of my favorite passages in God's Word. It's a passage that my family recites every Wednesday before dinner. It comes from chapter 2 of Paul's letter to the uh, Philippians. Paul writes these words. Your attitude, your attitude, that's not how we started at the dinner table. (laughs) Your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself, and became obedient, even unto death, death on a cross. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place, and God gave him the name that is above every name. That at the name of Jesus, every knee shall bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. This is one of the most beloved passages of the New Testament. Uh, It's an important passage that I think describes the the great lengths, the depths that Jesus went to in leaving the comforts of heaven and descending to earth as a humble servant. He came here to do the dirty job of dying for our sins, washing our feet. He did that because he knew that just somebody's got to do it. If he hadn't done it, it wouldn't have gotten done. It's like the lawn at my house. If I don't mow the lawn, it does not get mowed. We're living in a forest. If, the, if Michelle doesn't do the laundry, we're all walking around naked. <laughs> if Jesus had not died for our sins, we would all be stuck in them. But because of what Jesus did, Paul writes, God exalted him to the highest place. God rewarded him for his service. Now, even though this is a well-known passage, I actually think it's one that we get slightly wrong, maybe even fundamentally wrong when we read it. Let me show you what I mean. The first line of the passage, it's it's profoundly deep and difficult to get your brain around. Uh, Paul writes this, your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but instead made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant. So it's easy to think here that Paul, the author, is saying that Jesus came to earth as a servant even though he was God, and even though he didn't really want to do that. It's easy to understand Paul to be saying something like this. In spite of the fact that Jesus was God, he did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant. 
Honestly, that's how a lot of people sort of get this passage. It's like me saying that, you know, in spite of the fact that I'm a big, important pastor, I'm going to go show up and help at the food pantry, even though, you know, I'm really important, I've got other things to do, isn't that so nice of me? In spite of the fact that I'm a pastor, you know, of a medium-sized church in Afton, Missouri, I'm going to go, you know, down on Monday nights to help out with the homeless, and kudos to me. You know, or when a president shows up to help clean up in a disaster zone. You know, we're supposed to be just really impressed that such an important person would deign to give their precious time helping clean up. And that's how we sort of read this passage. You know, in spite of the fact that Jesus could have, you know, remained up in heaven and ruled over the entire creation, he came down to earth and, and isn't that nice of him. But in fact, this is not the point Paul is making. He's not suggesting that Jesus became a servant in spite of the fact that he was God. He's saying that Jesus became a servant because of the fact that he's God. He's saying that Jesus became a servant because of that. There's a difference here. As he says, your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus, who, being in very nature God, that being who he is, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped. There's a profound irony there. Who, being God, did not consider equality with God something that he should pursue. So just so, I wouldn't go to the food pantry despite the fact that I'm a pastor, but precisely because I'm a pastor, that's where I would go. A president would help clean up because he's the president, and that's what the president does. Jesus would come to earth because of the fact that he's God. This is what Paul is saying. A Bible commentator named Gerald Hawthorne gives what I think is the best translation. Precisely because he was in the form of God, not in spite of, Christ did not consider equality with God grounds for his own selfishness. On the contrary, he poured himself out by taking the form of a slave. So in coming to earth as a servant, Jesus wasn't becoming something unnatural to who he, he was. We only assume that, honestly, because we don't know the character of God very well. In coming to earth as a servant to wash feet and die for our sins, Jesus was only being himself. God is, in his very essence, a humble servant. That's who he is. We see in this passage, then, the humble character of God. And for the record, this is one of the many things that distinguishes the Christian God from, from other gods that so many other religions worship. I mean, not to put to find a point on it, but Allah would never do this. And Muslims would insist that he would never do this. He would never come to earth as a servant. No. But the Christian God did because it's who he is. But this passage is important also because it confronts us. Christ's example of servanthood confronts our own selfishness. You see, Paul describes the most important being in the universe coming to earth as a mere human servant to serve our needs. Conversely, most of us spend our lives as mere human servants who think of ourselves as the most important being in the universe. We live as though the universe revolves around us. In all kinds of ways we do this, right? Just live as though we are the center of the universe. How so? Well, you know, take your pick. We dominate conversations. We uh, talk about ourselves all the time. We think about ourselves all the time. We make decisions selfishly without any thought for how these decisions are going to infect the hundreds of people involved in our, in our lives. We, we complain at the smallest inconveniences. 
They are 15 seconds late with my fries. Where are my fries? We're, we're tiny little human beings who insist that we should be treated like gods. Meanwhile, the actual God of all creation came to earth and lived as a tiny little human being. Do you see the irony here? Jesus was God but lived as a human while we are humans who try to live as gods. Uh, John Ortberg, a preacher that I have enjoyed, uh, once wrote that every single human being who has ever lived suffers from some version of the Messiah complex. Do you know what the, the Messiah complex is? It's, it's some version of the delusion that the world revolves around you. Every human who has ever lived suffers from some version of the Messiah complex, except one. Who was it? It was the Messiah. Every person suffers from the Messiah complex, except the actual Messiah. So here in Philippians 2, God confronts our selfishness with the servanthood of Jesus as our model. Someone who descended to earth to do the dirty work. Paul says, that should be your attitude. Your attitude, your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus. Your attitude. Don't do this. Your attitude. That's what we should do at dinner. Your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus, who being a very nature God, did not consider equality God, something grass, but made up something, the very nature of the being made in human likeness, and being found in the appearance of the man, he humbles him and being humbled to death, even death on the cross. <laughs> Therefore God exalted him in the highest place and gave him the names above every name, that in the name of Jesus, every nature bow, and every tongue confess, Jesus Christ the Lord, the glory of God the Father. Got mumbled in there a little bit. <laughs> but let's look a little bit more deeply into the passage. Because I think we learn a lot from the passage about what servanthood looks like in some really specific ways. This Surf Sunday, before we break, I want to briefly offer you three ministries or three acts of service that Paul mentions. I want to tell you about the ministry of enslavement, the ministry of consideration, and the ministry of pouring. First, ministry of enslavement. The Apostle Paul uh, writes in verses 6 and 7 that Jesus made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant. Now, New Testament was written in Greek, and the Greek word for servant right there is a word that you, you might be familiar with. It's the word doulos. The Greek word doulos can be translated servant, but more literally, it's probably better translated slave. Now, the reason that we translate or translators translate doulos as servant, not slave, are many. Uh, One of the reasons is that the word slave is justifiably very painful for a lot of people. But one of the other reasons that it gets translated as servant, not slave, is because we don't like thinking of Jesus as a slave. Our our Lord is not our slave. He's, He's a king. He's a master. Well, yeah. It's kind of like a slave king, king of the slaves. And just so, we're called to imitate him. As Jesus teaches elsewhere, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant, your doulos. And whoever wants to be first must be your slave. Just as the son of man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. To serve as Jesus means to be a slave to the world. A servant to God on high. What does that mean? Really, it's not complicated. 
To be a slave means to do whatever God wants us to do. To be a slave means to do the things for others that nobody wants to do. This is how Jesus served, like at the Last Supper. You remember this scene when he washed everybody's feet. Everybody was sitting around. Nobody wanted to do it. Jesus said, okay, somebody's got to do it. He got down and washed everybody's feet. Years ago, for example, uh, we actually had a church member who uh, really understood this. He was with us in the earliest days. He kind of helped us get up and running. His name was Paul Seidel. I don't know if you remember Paul Seidel, but Paul Seidel was a servant. Uh, he just served. And he actually sent me a note in the early days, I think before we even like officially launched, he sent me a note that I will still remember. Uh, he said, Matt, in the note, uh, you know, you're, you're putting people in positions where they can serve and help and, and build rooftop. And, you know, you're going to want to put people in positions according to their gifts. But I want you to know, you're going to have some leftovers. I'm your guy. <laughs> put, put me there. Put me where you have nowhere else to serve. No one else to serve. And that's what he did. He, he worked with the kids. He did lawn care. He did renovations. He filed in the office. Whatever we needed him to do, he just did it. And for the record, God exalted him. Now he's a pastor on staff at a big church in Illinois. That's the ministry of enslavement. That's our calling, the dirty jobs nobody else wants to do. I mean, you, you moms know what this is like, right? The dirty jobs nobody else wants to do. You dads know what this is like, the dirty jobs nobody else wants to do. And Christians know what this is like. The dirty jobs nobody else wants to do. When you go outside uh, to look for jobs this morning, we, we really do. We want you to find one that, that suits your gifts. But don't be afraid to sign up on the sheet that nobody else has signed up for. If it's a terrible fit, we'll tell you. <laughs> but somebody's got to do it. Philippians 2 calls us to the ministry of enslavement. We're also called to the ministry of consideration. Earlier in this chapter, Paul challenges us to consider others better than yourselves. And then in this passage, he uses the word again in verse six, do not, did not, Jesus did not consider equality with God something to be grasped. He made himself nothing. So the, Paul, the word Paul uses here is the word consider, and it's a, it's a cousin to our English word considerate, which is basically anyone who is aware of what sort of effect her actions might have on others. That's what it means to be considerate, just to be aware of the, the needs and the presence of other people around you. The Bible is constantly telling us as followers of Jesus to be considerate of the people around you. Paul writes to Titus that we should be obedient, ready to do what is good, peaceable, considerate, and gentle towards everyone. Gentle towards everyone. That's a phrase. Peter challenges husbands everywhere to be considerate as you live with your wives. Cons consider that you have wives <laughs> and treat them with respect. One of the most basic, important ways we can live as servants of Jesus is by carefully considering the feelings, the needs of others, how our actions affect them, what they need, who they are, what we can provide. Uh, we can do this by evaluating our words before we say them and our actions before we act them. This is a lesson I'm constantly trying to master. Considering the needs and feelings of others around me is more important than my own. 
being aware of them. Uh, it's a lesson I'm trying to teach my kids, too. When my son, Max, was younger, uh, he had this, this funny, bothersome habit. Uh, for many years, he would start off a comment by saying, Dad, I don't mean to be offensive, but, offensive thing. We're like, Max, if you didn't need to be offensive, then why did you, like, say that? And sometimes we'll try to stop him, like, halfway through. We're like, no. He's like, oh, thanks. That, that's helpful. Thank you. Like I said, he's grown out of this. Uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, the, the German theologian, he writes one of my favorite quotes here. Bonhoeffer writes this. He says, often we combat our evil thoughts most effectively if we absolutely refuse to allow them to be expressed in words. Part two gets better. It must be a decisive rule of every Christian fellowship that each individual is prohibited from saying much that occurs to him. I'm going to read part two again. It must be a decisive rule of every Christian fellowship, decisive rule of every Christian fellowship that each individual is prohibited from saying much that occurs to him. I actually printed that up and put it on the wall of our, our office over there this week, and one in my own office, so that it's for me too. For many of us, there must be nothing, there, there might be nothing more service-oriented we can do in our lives than just saying less than what we do, or saying more, doing more, more encouragement, more kindness, more grace. Either way, this takes consideration. Christians think about the people around them. Profound but true. Remember that. Christians think about the people around them. Philippians 2 calls us to the ministry of enslavement, of consideration, and finally we're called to the ministry of pouring. Verse 7, Paul writes that instead of taking advantage of his divine status, he made himself nothing. More Greek. Uh, the Greek word that Paul uses here for made himself nothing, it's, it's a notoriously difficult word to translate. It's kenosis. And translators have a field day trying to figure out what exactly this means. Some translate it like the King James Version. He made himself of no reputation. Other translations, he gave up everything. But my favorite translation is Hawthorne's translation here. It says, Jesus poured himself out. He kenosis himself. That's how Jesus came to serve humanity, by pouring himself out. He didn't come to sprinkle himself. He didn't come to offer us a teaspoon of himself. He came to pour himself out, give us every ounce of himself, so much so that like, when you wring the towel of his life, like nothing came out. Because he was out. At the Last Supper, he tells the disciples that his blood is being poured out for many, for the forgiveness of sins. This is how Jesus came to serve, by pouring and it's how we're called to serve, too. We're called to pour. Like the woman who broke an expensive jar of perfume, poured it all over Jesus' feet. You know this story? In the Gospel of Matthew and a couple other Gospels, too, Jesus and his disciples, they're having dinner. And in the middle of the dinner, this, this woman comes in with a large alabaster flask of perfume, very expensive perfume, very large flask, and what does she do? She breaks it, pours it all over his feet. And then she uses her tear-stained hair to wash his feet. To us, it's like gross. Like, why is anybody doing this? But back then, it was a, a, an extravagant display of affection and worship. 
Nonetheless, some, some onlookers thought it was a little bit over the top, and Jesus defends her, saying, she poured perfume on my body, and wherever the gospel is preached throughout the world, what she has done will be told in memory of me. When we pour ourselves out for Jesus, what we do will be told in memory of him. Jesus and this woman are models for how we are to serve by pouring ourselves out, by breaking the jar. Have you ever served like that? To the point of emptiness. After some Sundays of preaching and serving and ministering, you know, I know what this is like. You're just empty. Sometimes we start here on Sundays at like 5.30 a.m. and we wrap up like at 11 p.m. On those Sundays, I am poured out. But I know you know the feeling. Some of you serve at the food pantry after a long day of work. You've already put in a long day. You spent hours like getting the kids ready to school. You went to work and then you spent three hours at the food pantry on Thursday night. Uh, some of you are up late after the kids go to bed so you can prepare for a few hours to lead your small group like the next day. I've seen some of you cleaning the building here at 10 p.m. on Saturday night because it's the only time you could fit in to get the bathrooms ready for Sunday morning people. Some of you foster parents are poured out after watching kids and just when you need a break, you get a call from social services that there's another group of siblings that need some emergency care. I know you guys know what it's like to feel poured out. There are dozens and dozens of servants around here at Rooftop who are pouring themselves out into the church, into the community, into the families as Jesus did. Our church functions because of their efforts. But here's what they would tell you. They would tell you that although they're tired, they're not depleted. Although they're busy, they're not empty. You would think they would be empty, depleted, but they're not. They are able to pour themselves out because the Holy Spirit, here's how this works. The Holy Spirit keeps them filled up. Jesus poured himself out because within him was the fountain of God, the Holy Spirit of God, who kept him filled up. Just so with his people. If you commit yourself to serving with the humility of Jesus, you will never run dry. I haven't run dry. I'm pouring myself out. I haven't run dry. Christ keeps me filled up. If you commit yourself to serving with the humility of Jesus, you will never run dry. You might get tired. You might need a nap, but you won't run dry. In fact, just the opposite. You'll be filled to overflowing. You'll be energized to keep serving in all the ways God has equipped you past where you thought you could. And more than that, you won't just be filled up. You will be lifted up. Paul writes that because of Christ's servanthood, God exalted him to the highest place, gave him the name that is above every name. And this is his promise to us. As we descend into servanthood, we will ascend into glory. As we become his slaves, we'll be raised his saints. As we do what somebody's got to do, God will do for us what only he can. Jesus makes us this promise, as he says in John. Anyone who loves their life will lose it. While anyone who hates their life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Whoever serves me must follow me. And where I am, my servant also will be. My father will honor the one who serves. That's your call.